This is Darrell Lalia, and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast, episode 64. Okay, I'm reloaded. Are you ready to be the master architect of your life? Are you ready to design your business and invest the needs that create the lifestyle you've always dreamt of? Are you ready to learn from entrepreneurs and millionaires who have achieved a certain level of success? Hey, this is Derek, location-independent entrepreneur, and you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hi, I'm Gina Lofton. I am an investor, and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey there, my name is Heather Havenwood, marketing coach and global entrepreneur. And you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey, this is Mark Asquith, the host of the 7 Minute Mentor podcast, global entrepreneur and all round geek. And you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. I am MC Lobsher, the cash flow ninja, and you're listening to Before the Millions podcast. You're listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Whether you're looking to invest for cash flow or build an online business that allows you to be location independent, you've come to the right place mr hollywood himself presents the before the millions podcast and now your host deray olalaye hey what's up welcome back this is the before the millions podcast the podcast dedicated to lifestyle design before the millions and we have another fun-filled jam-packed episode for you guys today today we're speaking with mr chad doty And what's really interesting about this episode, guys, is that last week we had Sonny Burns back on the show. So you guys know Sonny from episode one, and he was on uh, episode 63 as well. And we had him on the show and we literally walked through a case study for a small multifamily because a lot of you guys are interested in in the multifamily section. You guys know that that's where I invest and that's where a lot of people start investing in to go bigger, faster, to escape the rat race, to scale beyond their wildest of dreams. And to complement that episode, this week we're talking to Chad about the exact same thing, but we're not walking through a case study. We're talking about why it's better to jump into the big boats now, why it's better to go bigger, faster. And and some of the other things that we're going to talk about on today's episode is some amazing advice for any professional who's currently investing in their 401k. We're going to talk about how they should go about investing. And also how to decide a good mix of investment strategies that are tailored to your needs. So whether you need to be in like 20% in stocks and 80% in real estate or like 30% in precious metals and so on and so forth. So guys, we're going to get into what a good mix is for you guys. We're also going to talk about Chad's story. We're going to talk about how he's failed a whole lot as an entrepreneur and how that has set him up for success. But again, guys, the crux of the episode, we're going to talk about purchasing multifamily. And we're going to compare that to a single family home. We're going, to, we're going to see how and why you guys should start considering jumping straight into multifamily or scaling as fast as possible. Oh, and, you know, speaking of the triplex case study that we did with Sunny last episode, it's been a crazy morning already. And just to give you guys like a list of the calls I've been on right before I decided to record this first call was with one of my clients who just purchased their first triplex. And I'm simply ecstatic for that. My second call was with my web designer who was going to revamp some of the pages on our website. My third call was with our social manager who's in the process of creating our Instagram page. So more on that maybe next week or on next episode. And last but not least, in the tip of the week, I'm going to share with you guys exactly where to find the money for your first investment property. You don't want to miss this. So guys, let's go ahead and get to the tip of the week and then let's get to the show. DeRay's tip of the week. So guys, the tip of the week this week is that I know I told you guys in the intro that I was going to tell you guys where to find the money, 
but I really want to cover how to find the money. And we're talking about finding the money for your first investment property, for any investment property, really, and how to go about doing that. And, you know, it's one of those things to where I could literally give you guys 10 places to find the money and I actually will. And I'll show you guys where to get that information. But none of that really matters if you don't know how to find the money. What I mean by how to find the money, it's not more so a method or a technique or a step-by-step process, but a mindset. You know, a few months ago, I had a potential client approach me and ask how he could uh, potentially work with me. And he wanted to start investing in real estate. He was really, really interested in gung-ho about uh, becoming a client of mine. And he had just came into a large inheritance and he was ready to invest in real estate. He knew the power of real estate. He knew that he wanted to be able to learn a system to build to build generational wealth for not only himself, but his family. And you know, it's one of those things to where when you think about what people are after when they look to real estate as an investment vehicle, they're after that passive cash flow. They're after that income that they get in the mailbox, whether or not they get out of bed. You know, so it's one of those things to where. If people could have that, any and everybody in the world would sign up for that. If they knew that on the other end of a course or a training or a seminar or a workshop, that they would be equipped to be able to build infinite wealth and they knew it was possible for them and they knew that they were able to do this, like they had the know-how, they had the skills, they had everything that that they needed inside of them. They just needed to implement and that they could build infinite wealth for not only their generation, but generations to come for their family. I mean, that's priceless. That's a no-brainer, right? So I had this potential client approach me. He came into this large inheritance and he was like, Dre, like I'm ready to work with you. I can't wait to invest in real estate. I'm super excited. And I'm just, I'm just like, I'm just ready to jump in. So what's the first step? And oftentimes when I get approached like this, it normally prompts a red flag. So I told him, let's take a step back. Let's figure out if we're a good fit. Let's talk about, you know, the process of us working together and what that would look like. And we did that. And, you know, I told him the kind of qualities I look for in clients and so on and so forth. So we had a conversation that ended with us deciding to get back on the phone in a few days to talk about next steps. Within those few days, this potential client found out that his inheritance was no longer his. His father and his stepmom were married, obviously. And she believed that she had rights to that money contractually. So the person that showed up on that call, the super fired up person that was ready to start investing in real estate because he knew it was a formidable path and he knew that was going to change his life, was no longer the person that showed up a few days later on our follow-up call. This person had no confidence. The second person, which is the same person, guys, he had no confidence. He had no resources. And he had no drive. If I would have accepted him as a client and he would have ran into problems nine times out of 10, he would not be cut out for the ups and downs of real estate. He would not be cut out. He would not be cut out for the emotional roller coaster. And I say this because when he had the resources, he was confident, he was driven, and he was motivated. When he didn't have the resources, everything changed. And we think about that. And we think about most of our situations. And it's like, The type of people that I see getting success, getting to the plateaus that they want to reach, nine times out of 10, it's the people who don't have the resources. But being resourceful versus having the resources, those are two different things. Resources are finite, meaning it can be here today and gone tomorrow, just like in this situation. And what's left is the person's attributes, the person's characteristics, who this person is at their core. 
Now, if this guy was already a motivated person, if this guy was already a resourceful person, had actually made the decision, the actual decision to invest in real estate, then that mishap with the inheritance, that wouldn't have thrown him off course. Yes, that's a major financial change. But again, if you make the decision to become a real estate investor and you know what's on the other end waiting for you, then you will do everything in your power to become financially free. So it's not about the resources. It's about being resourceful. It's about what type of person you are. It's about what types of decisions that you've actually made. So I say all that to say this, when it comes to where to find the money, first make the decision that you are a real estate investor, that you are going down this path and that no matter what happens in the future, you're going to buy your first investment property or your second or your third, you're going to be a real estate investor. And that regardless of where the money comes from, how it appears, what you have to do to get it, it's going to get done. If you have that mindset, and you can only have that mindset if you actually truly believe that real estate is the key to generational wealth, that real estate is going to provide for yourself and your family, that's going to give give you the lifestyle that you want, the flexibility that you want, and the money that you want. If you truly believe that's on the other end, then then that in itself, what's on the other end, that's priceless. You can't put a number on that. So how much hustle are you willing to put in to make sure that happens? How driven are you? How resourceful are you? It's not about having the resources. It's about being resourceful. It's about making a decision. And then once you make that decision, you go on to be resourceful. So when it comes to where to find the money, the reason why it's not about the 10 ways that I'm going to give you guys to find the money, it's about making the decision to find the money. It's about making the decision to be a real estate investor is that once you make that decision, you're going to find the money. So if there's anything that you can take away from this from this tip of the week is that make a decision, make an actual decision and do not deviate, do not turn away from that decision so that when you hear the 10 ways to find the money, you're going to explore one if not all of these paths, and you're going to be successful at one of them because you've already made a decision to not quit. You've already made a decision to become a real estate investor, so you're not going to give up. So if you don't have the funds and you make a decision that this is what you want, you are going to get to your goal as long as one of the characteristics that you have, one of the traits that you have is resourcefulness. Not having the resources, but being resourceful. So with that being said, guys, in my Facebook group last week, the Passive Cashflow Lifestyle Facebook group, if you guys want to join the group, it's at beforethemillions.com slash group. That's beforethemillions.com slash group. We had a live Q&A last week and we literally laid out the 10 ways to find the money for your down payment, for your first real estate deal and to start cash flowing. And I want you guys, if you guys aren't already in that group, I want you guys to join our group so that you can watch that video. But I wanted the tip of the week this week to be a preface to that video, to let you guys know that before any of these 10 ways, and these are really, really, really creative ways, by the way, these are really creative and lucrative ways. Just to give you guys an example, one of the ways is closing at the beginning of the month. Some investors prefer to schedule their closings at the beginning of the month because the buyer is entitled to prepaid rents and security deposits. So if you close on August 2nd, the rents are prorated and you're entitled to 29 days of monthly rent. So in in, in some transactions, guys, you can use the security deposit and the prorated rent to decrease the amount of cash needed to close. Again, this is a very creative way that you guys can use to have a lower down payment. And I give you guys nine other ways to find the money. So if you guys want to check out those ways, visit beforethemillions.com slash group. But again, before you visit that, 
before you join our group, before you start watching our Q&As on Thursday, I want you guys to have made that decision that you are going to be a real estate investor and that nothing is going to hold you back. Because again, once that decision is made, you're going to find a way. If that decision is not made and you go on and watch a video like where to find the money, you're going to come up with excuses. You're going to start something and you're like, well, this doesn't work for me or this doesn't apply to me or I'm not going to try this or this is too much work. That's the the biggest one. This is too much work. How is anything too much work if what's on the other end of that is financial freedom? Not only for your life, but for your kid's life. How is anything too much work if what is on the other end is location independence? How is anything too much work if what's on the other end is you only working when it's truly fulfilling for you? You only doing the things that fulfill you. If that's on the other end, there's no such thing as too much work. But if you don't believe that, then you're, you're already a step behind. So it starts with your beliefs. It starts with, with your decision making. So how to find the money? Change your mindset. Make a decision. And then everything else will fall in place. So now, guys, let's get to the show. And now your feature presentation. On today's episode, guys, I'm super excited to introduce to all of you a man who's been in multifamily for about 12 years now, Mr. Chad Doty. Chad, how's it going? Uh, fantastic. Thank you. Most of the listeners are constantly bombarded with ways to get into real estate. And, you know, there, there's lots of ways out there and there's lots of different niches in real estate. But, you know, I really, really fancy multifamily. That's where I've always set my eyes on. That's where that's the space I'm in now. And it's the space that a lot of listeners are aspiring to get to because there's a lot of benefits in multifamily. And hopefully we can get into some of those. But first, Chad, let's take it back. Let's get into your story. Let's talk about your younger days. Let's talk about the early inception of Chad. I know that you, uh, we come from similar backgrounds and I kind of want to get into your whole foray into real estate and how this all came about. So let's talk about your leaving college, getting your degree. You're going to work for whoever it is that you work for, uh, which I know who that is now, but we're, you're, you're going to work in, in, the corporate American, in the corporate America, I guess, scheme of things, and then how you started to find meaning or fulfillment outside of that. So let's kind of talk about that. Let's take it back as far as you want to go, and then we'll work our way up. You got it. I was born. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I love it. My father was a Navy pilot, and he, I saw him... Like when up until I was nine, I was in, in Jacksonville, Florida. And so he, well, I don't, when I was little, I don't remember him being gone, but I was all excited for him to back. When he left that, we went, moved to Kansas City and I grew up there. And I remember he, he worked for people. He it was a pilot. He went to work for Braniff. And then if anyone remembers, Braniff fell apart. So his dream of being an airline pilot sort of went away. And then he started his own company. And, and I used to work for him and I would work. In Kansas, you can get your restricted driver's license real or like 14. And I worked when I was 13 over the summer. I worked from 8 at night till 8 in the morning. I'd work a 12-hour shift at his print shop, go to soccer, do soccer two days, and I would sleep in between. And I earned enough to buy my first car right the day I turned 14. And so work ethic was something I got early. And then my dad had that in, in spades. But he also gave me a few aspirational things. I remember he gave me Thinking Grow Rich when I was 18. And I also listened to Les Brown, a fantastic motivational speaker when I was younger too. I wore out the tape, but I didn't, I wasn't like an entrepreneur. It was more just being aspirational. So I went to school, did computer science and philosophy, graduated, had a few uh, smaller jobs, and eventually started working with a company called Arthur Anderson. 
and kind of rose through the ranks in the business consulting side. So it wasn't audit, wasn't tax. It was getting dropped into companies to make them run better. So for uh, a good chunk of my career, I did either technology or operations improvement for companies either being bought or just looking to become more profitable. So I got to see the guts of both good and bad businesses several times a year for multiple years. So I kind of grew up through that. If you guys remember Enron, Enron melted Arthur Anderson down, went from like 80,000 employees and 9 billion in revenue to like 60 attorneys in Switzerland in six months. But I was a, like a year and a half, two years from partner. And having that, that the event for me was having that taken away from me. So my father not being able to fly for Brandon because it melted down and me not being able to make partner with Anderson because it melted down, it definitely brought in some control issues and that I wanted to be in an industry. I couldn't, it was a nascent idea. I couldn't articulate it well at the time, but it was, I wanted to have control over the industry I selected and the business I had because I didn't want anything else to control my fate. And then along the way, after Anderson melted down, I, I worked for a couple, a, a small consultancy, became an employee inside of a larger company for a while. Didn't really enjoy either of them. Then went to work independently, started my own consulting firm, but I had some travel requirements. And my son, who's 12 now, but at the time, my wife called me when I was four hours away to let me know that she was pregnant. And I, I couldn't be there immediately to hug her and talk to her and all that stuff. And it was at that moment where it dawned on me that my father had been absent from that for the first nine years of my life, and I didn't want that viscerally. And so it was a, okay, how do I get time freedom I want, the money I want, the control I want, and being be, be there for my son? So all that combined into, okay, that was that burning platform for me. And then I started a, uh, a small, while I was still had the consulting company on, I, I put a small fund together and I was trading OEX credit spread. So that's the S&P 100. So I got into options trading for a while. And I was profitable, but I hated it. It was just, you're, you're staring at the glass all day. It's not creative. There's no people aspect to it. And uh, the value is being a robot. And then, so eventually I got out of that. And then as I was, I was still in consulting and I needed to find a space that was evergreen, I could control. It made sense to me as a business. It made sense to me as a value proposition. And then and selected real estate. And then it was, okay, what is the safest of all real estate asset classes? Well, if you look at it, there's different metrics, but if you look at the risk-adjusted return of the major real estate asset classes, income-producing real estate asset classes, multifamily over any period greater than five years has the best risk-adjusted return. And then inside multifamily, brand new stuff, A, workforce, B, and low workforce and subsidized, C, B, grade stuff, had the best stability and the best value range. So I didn't grow up in real estate. I picked it as a business analyst. It had the best features that I wanted to build a real wealth and get scale from both people and time and create time freedom for us and create a self-managing company. So that's basically sort of how I got to 37 Parallel. It's, you know, I own, basically I don't know the business partner own basically half. We have a small minority investor group, but you know, 3,100 doors, 355 million transaction volume later and hundred percent profitability track record, you know, we're doing okay. Yeah. I love it. I love it, Chad. And let me, let me bring out my microscopic lens and let's 
dig deep into your story a little bit more. Yeah. At the time you were a senior manager, you were confronted with a situation that you weren't expecting. And the situation brought on fears and doubts about control and how you were able to kind of cultivate your life going forward. I mean, you had no control over what was going on at Arthur Anderson. You had no control over what was going on in Enron. You had no control over what was going on nationally, internationally. But all of these, all of these things were, all of these factors were affecting you. And you realized the pattern that you were in. You realized that your dad was affected by similar, by similar shifts, by similar patterns. And you didn't want to continue down that path. So this was maybe shift number, number one for you, or maybe aha moment number one for you. But this aha moment in itself wasn't enough to get you started down this path. You went down and you started, you started, deci- I mean, you decided to become a consultant for another agency or for, or for another company. And you did that for a while. And it wasn't until your wife was pregnant with your son that you had that second shift. And when you had that second shift, combined with your first shift, that's when things started, started falling, falling in line for you. That's when you started, started trying to discover how can you create the lifestyle that you want? How can you be in control again? And I don't know if, I don't know if you can remember this far, you can remember the details of this, but what were some of your options apart from real estate? I mean, what were you thinking about doing? You know, you say that real estate made the most economic sense. It made the most sense on paper. It made the most sense as far as lifestyle design. But before you knew any of this, what were some of your options and how did you start weighing those options? It's a great question. The, I, I did, I looked at basically three things realistically. And I'm, I have a unique specialty in deconstructing business models and doing it for years. And I'm not unique necessarily, but it's something I'm good at. And so when I was looking at, well, I knew consulting and trading time for money. And it's very hard to do risk-based consulting in sort of the operational improvement area, just because so many other variables, you know, controls. So you're basically trading time for money. So I could scale consulting. I could add employees that I had a business that was focused on trading time and value for money. But the problem with consulting, at least in the space I was in, it was all project-based. There was no annuity revenue streams. So you started from ground zero every single year. And the stress, and I had a number at the two consulting firms I worked in. So I knew the stress of hitting a number as an employee, but there's also much, much more stress of a, as a partner and incrementally more stress as an owner when you're trying to hit payroll. And so as I looked at the scale points, it's like, there's literally a dozen ways this could break and break badly. So then it was, okay, how can I do it where it's just me, I can do something where I can still do consulting, but I can create more economic space. And that was that options fund that I did. And again, it was profitable, but its scale was linear. If I made more money, I had more money to work with. If I, but I couldn't live off of it. And I could go get more money and create a trading platform. Then that was a whole other slew of other things that would take me year and a half, two years to get to. And again, did I like it enough to do that? And I didn't control the underlying thing I was trading. I had to react. So could I scale it? It would take a while. The control was reactionary. I can buy or sell, but at the end of the day, if the underlying didn't do what I needed to do, I couldn't make money. So I did it for a while though. But then, you know, so those were the things I went for. Scale the consulting business because I could sell, you know, consulting you break it down and sell it, do it, collect the bill and, and providing value to your client. Those we can do. It's just that the business was not attracted at size. So then when, when I went into multifamily, I didn't go into thinking I'm going to buy a deal. 
I'd already bought a six unit building. So I, I tried some of it on and I was going to buy a 12 unit building. And I was like, no, no, no. How does this actually scale? How to create a business that spins off five million a year revenue that has time freedom? What does the equity base look like? And that, that's the architecture we built 10, 11 years ago. And so we've been building that out ever since. Love it. Love it, Chad. And, you know, it's easy for me and some of the other guests on the show to kind of talk about the benefits of real estate or talk about the benefits of multifamily as opposed to, you know, some, some of the softer asset classes like stocks, bonds, mutual funds, things like that. But when I'm on the call with somebody like you who, who has traded options for a living, who knows how to make money in that market, I'd love to get your perspective on maybe somebody who doesn't have your, your background, maybe who, somebody who has a typical professional background and who, who is by default investing in their 401k. What would you, as far as their advantages and disadvantages, what would you suggest should be their mix? How should they go about investing when they're not privy to some of the things that you may be privy to? Is it easier to start investing in real estate rather than investing in, you know, their stocks, bonds, and mutual funds, or should they kind of stick to what's, what's given to them by default? What is your, what is your whole, you know, I guess your whole basis on that? Because again, you, you have, you know how that, you know how that works. It's easy for you to talk about both sides of the coin. And I want to get somebody who's able to challenge maybe our popular belief in this community that we should just strictly focus on an asset like real estate. It's like a dumb man's way to wealth, but I'm sure that you have maybe differing opinions or maybe you have some enlightenment that you can give us to show us that, you know, maybe there's an argument to have a good mix. I don't know that I'm going to offer much of a contrary opinion to where you're at. The nuance of it, if, if someone's looking at that space is th think about the underlying environment in Options trading is a zero-sum game. You know, for someone to buy, there has to be a seller. For someone to win, there has to be a loser. Same thing with commodities. Stocks aren't technically, but they're, they're close. And the people and trading systems that are aligned against you are light years ahead of any sophistication, speed, information you will ever have. I can't remember, um, I think it's the, I forget the guy's name, but he ran the endowment fund for either Princeton or Yale. And he basically said, paraphrasing, you know, you're competing with people who are, imagine a professional football team who trains every single year, day in, day out, every single week, multiple hours per week with the best systems, the best trainers, the best coaches, the best physicality they can for one single event, which is a game. These are the kind of people that you're trading against as a novice in your basement, in your part-time, without the resources, the intelligence, or the time. Do you really want to play that game? I love this. I love this, Chad. Keep going. <laughs> so, you know, I say that is I know people who have been successful in that game. I don't know many people who have been successful for a long period of time, but they will have pockets of it. Um, so it's, you know, it, it, and I think why it's interesting is because it has a low barrier to entry. It's a trading system, whatever that is, and some amount of seed capital and intellectual curiosity to learn a process that works for you, but because it's such an efficient system, or because it changes, let me put it that way, that what you is works well today won't work well tomorrow. Where, where what we're doing in multifamily is I'm doing the same exact fundamental business that worked 50 years ago. And it's not a zero-sum game. It's fact, if you are not a slumlord and you take care of your partners, it is a win-win-win-win scenario. Your, your residents have a clean, safe place to live. Your property manager makes money. You as the asset manager make money. Your investor makes money. Your mortgage broker makes money. The, the real estate broker makes money. Your partners make money. No one's losing as long as you are an ethical participant. 
And you can't say that about the stock bond market. You know, again, it's not, I don't want to say demonize one over the other. I'm just laying out the choices that the lens by which I look at it and why I'm like 90% real estate and 10% insurance. You know, that's, I don't have no stock exposure other than some token 401k stuff I have to do just the way my company structure. That makes sense. And I love that insight, Chad. So thank you so much for that. And we're going to get into some of the benefits of real estate, but more specifically, multifamily here shortly. But Chad, really quick, take us through a failure. So how has failure, maybe apparent failure, set you up for later success? When we started the company, the first deal I bought, and it took me actually two tries to learn this lesson. So I'm a slower learner when it comes to partnerships. But a lot of people want to partner sometimes in real estate because one of the barriers to entry is capital. Another can be time. But the, the thing is, is control, control is a very, very bad, it's a bad mixed marriage. So my first building that I bought, I bought with a, uh, we both put in some capital. I kind of brought the deal together, the overall strategy, set the budget, we both agreed to it. And then he had some other deals here in town and basically he spent pretty much the entire renovation budget on one kitchen. Um, fantastic looking kitchen, <laughs> but <laughs> going to, it wasn't going to move the needle on the other units. And it was just like, and did it without even talking about it. And I'm like, okay. And so eventually like, okay, buy me out. I'm done. I, I don't want to work for you in this environment. So got cleaned that. And then when, I first started, I started with a gentleman who we just had different goals for the business. And at one point we had three partners, we just disagreed and we had to, we had to sort of split up a little bit and that's never fun, but the, and it set us back. Now the growth we've gotten since that has been fantastic. Inc 5,000, three years in a row, we'll probably do four years in a row. We're able to scale in ways we need to and move at a much faster pace, but it's, I'm just, I would caution anyone to partner with somebody who you don't already have a five plus year working relationship and your kids know each other and treat them like family. Yeah, for sure. I love that. And that's, that's beautiful advice. You know, so, so let me ask you this. So through your progression, I mean, you started, what, what year did you start your company? What year did I start? 2008. 2008. So you started, I mean, basically like right around the crash, you started maybe at the best time you could possibly start a company in the past 20, 30 years, would you say? <laughs> I think nine or 10 would have been a little bit better, at least for commercial multifamily, because there was stuff was still kind of falling then. And then when we started, it's funny you say that, because now people look back and say, what a great time to start. Then people are looking at us like, are you crazy? Yep. Um, <laughs> and we, it, we didn't, I, I'm not going to claim in any way, shape or form that we had a crystal ball about what was going to happen in, from real estate pricing. And, and a lot of people equate the residential real estate to commercial multifamily. And they're, they're not, depending on the market, they're not even correlated, you know, so they're, they're not the same. And what we were looking at was demographics. We're very much a econometrics and demographics shop. We're looking at uh, household formation, where it's moving to, it, it, in what age bracket, what job bracket, what's the median income of the population moving to locations we want, the kind of asset we want. So, we're, so that kind of stuff, when you're looking at those trends in 08, you're like, it looks fantastic about what those shifts were, but it took, you know, so the, all the, 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 the lending processes we had that in, in from, you know, 1998 to 2008 were basically, if you, 
they put a mirror underneath your nose and it fogged up, you got a loan. That created a lot of, you know, one, a 1% 1 decline in homeownership rates a million new renters, plus demographics, plus a few other things. It was creating the demand for that. And we saw that, but we didn't know how long it was going to take or what have you. So, you know, some people thought we were smart. Some people thought we were just, we were going to die and we were dumb and that we were just tenacious. Yeah, I love it. I love it. So that I mean, that, that's that's the inception. That's kind of what 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 got you going and what got you started. And this was you know ten years ago now. So let, let's kind of fast forward a little bit now. In the past five years, mm -hmm. what new belief, behavior, or habit has improved your business? What have you done? What have you implemented in the past five years that you've seen profound effects that the listener can maybe take away a nugget or two from that to help them in their investing journey? Uh, I'm going to provide two. And this is related, I'm gonna, I'm gonna step ahead to foreshadowing to favorite book conversation because this process is one of the most valuable as a business owner and entrepreneur, in my opinion. A lot of business is not about growing revenue or cutting expenses or finding some magic difference. A lot of it is just playing whack-a-mole. It is literally finding where are the constraints and limits in your business, reducing the largest constraints and then finding out where the next one shows up. And there's a great book about the theory of constraints called The Goal by Eli Goldbratt. And it's, it's really about manufacturing process and throughput when you read it, but it's applicable to every single business on the planet, even relationships. And that is a fundamental outlook we've had since we started, but we didn't really, but it's tough to look at when your scale is so small. When you're, when you're the, the salesman, the bread maker, and the cleaner, it's hard to look at that way because you are the constraint. But as you start to add staff and apply capital, as you get to some level of maturity where you're not worried about payroll every month, then the theory of constraints becomes more functionally useful. So that's a huge item. And then the other one is we do coaching work ourselves that's not real estate related. It's entrepreneurship related. There's a company called Strategic Coach, a guy named Dan Sullivan, and they're fantastic. And one thing about scale that goes along with the theory of constraints is that businesses shift. And as you shift from what are you doing and how are you doing it? A lot of the, the real dramatic scale in your business is, 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 is by not asking how and what your first, your first one is why and who, why do we need to do this? And who is the best person to do this? Whether it's a resource to teach you or someone to hire or someone to partner with at a JV level, but converting from, how, what, to why, who, as you scale, is it's like it's just it's rocket fuel. I love that, and I love both of those pieces of advice. And it sounds like that was your your also before the millions uh, book. So we'll we'll definitely talk about that a little bit more later on in the show as well. So I got one. You got another one? Oh, sweet, sweet, sweet. I'm I'm excited for that then. So. We've talked, we've talked about your inception into this whole world, into your journey. We've talked about the past 10 years. We've talked, talked about the past five years and what you've been able to create. Present day, this podcast is about lifestyle design, especially through real estate. You've been able to create the ultimate lifestyle that you've always wanted. You're no longer a senior manager at an accounting firm. You're no longer tied to th this, this business entity that's tied to a network of business entities, that's tied to the government, that's tied to the United States, that's tied to you know everything that goes on around the world, but you are your own boss. You have the control that you've always wanted, the control that your dad didn't have. You know, So let's talk about your lifestyle design presently. What is that? What is, what is your life look like now what are the things that you're able to do that you've always wanted to do how, how are you how are you incorporating this design with your family with your friends and and now with your employees 
So lifestyle design, as, as you know, it's, it's very much a different answer for different people. I'm not an overly, like, so my business partner, Dan, is, is a, he's a far better human than me in that he's very, he grew up in a very, with preachers and teachers as his parents and his family. And so he's very philanthropic in nature. And I don't know why, I have like a help with kids' causes and, and certain other items, but those are, I feel like they're oughts, not once, but we still do them. But I'll tell you a story that was the most meaningful for me, which is from a time freedom perspective. When, so that same year that I, we, I got the call that my wife was pregnant with our son, we also had scheduled our nine-year anniversary to go to Tahiti. And so we, I think she was eight weeks pregnant, flying her from Virginia out to Tahiti. And so she was not a happy uh, plane passenger, but it was <laughs> out there. And she was a trooper. And, and we, we've had some amazing trips since then. We, we went out to, we were in an overwater. And all this was paid for based other than like maybe a plane, the plane tickets from LA to Tahiti by all the points I'd accumulate traveling across the country as a road warrior in the consulting space. So <laughs> there was a price paid. But we stayed in an overwater bungalow in Bora Bora. And I remember looking out over the water one morning on the back deck. And it's just, it's just our bungalow attached to the walkway on land and you're over water. And I'm looking out over the atoll. And there's this catamaran outside of the, the atoll anchored. And it's like 8, 8.30 in the morning. I basically see the... the the guy, one of the, the passengers in the boat, and I can't see faces. Right? I just see it's a, it's a, it's a man, and he basically uh, pulls out a kite, it's a kite board, inflates the kite, takes off on the outside of the atoll, basically kite boards down the outside of the atoll, and then kites board back, kite boards back, and then drops the kite and gets it all installed, you know, installed, and then they basically pull the anchor, raise the sail, and sail off. And I'm like, what a fantastic morning especially if I'm there with like a loved one or whatever. And I didn't realize I was, my wife was laughing at me because I sat there open mouth staring at this for like three and a half hours, you know? <laughs> and I was like, that is awesome. And it stuck with me stuff. I can still, I'm, as I'm telling you this, I, I, I vividly see the picture in my head. And then fast forward, I've got my catamaran qual. I've sailed around the BDI multiple times, the Greek islands in kiteboard. I try to come on the water two to three times a year, either on a sailboat or power and then beach. I grew up in Jacksonville, so being in the water, and, and I go on the beach all the time, so being in the water is my calm. So that sort of having the freedom to do that literally whenever I want, I don't just stuck with me and being able to take whoever I wanted with me. So this year we'll probably do, I want to say my son's had his passport since he was three. We'll be in Spain for two weeks. We've got... West Coast, we've got wine country. He's been to Canada, England, and Europe. We've been all through two weeks in Tokyo. So we're big travel junkies. So having the, and that's not inexpensive either. So having the ability to do that right, first class or economy comfort, nice hotels, good food, experiences are the things that drive us. We're kind of, how do we create that, that what we call the, the, the non-life ending peak experience. So I don't have any bug up my butt to go, climb Kilimanjaro or Everest, but if I cannot die and have a blast doing it with my family, then <laughs> you know. So yeah, that's kind of some of that progression. 
Oh man, Chad, I love it. And you painted the most vivid, clearest picture for our listeners. And I know that you got some of our listeners excited. I mean, this is, this is the lifestyle that we talk about so often on the show that is attainable for anybody who wants it. Anybody who wants to travel down this path, anybody who wants to start shifting the quadrants in which they're making their income from and start, you know, investing in hard assets and start building generational wealth and start creating that passive income that's mailbox money, whether or not you get out of bed. I mean, this is what this is what's on the other end of that. And Chad, you were able to see that early on. You were able to see that not not because it was something that maybe you've always imagined, but because you had a pain point you were in a position in which you didn't have control. And because of that, because of that discomfort, because of maybe, you know, that, that quote unquote failure, the feedback that you got, you were able to transition to a lifestyle that was more suited for your wants, needs, desires, and your fulfillment for not only, not only for yourself, but for your family. And that's super amazing. And I think that's super important to highlight on this episode. So I'm glad that you were able to share that. Now let's get into some multifamily. And we talked about earlier the difference between real estate and maybe, you know, some soft assets like stocks and bonds. But let's talk about, you know, at a more granular level, the difference, which you also mentioned earlier, between maybe commercial real estate and single family investing. So what, what do you consider commercial real estate? I mean, commercial real estate is you've got you've got different asset classes, hospitality, industrial, office, retail, storage, multifamily and multifamily the way the Census Bureau defines it basically is four units and down is residential multifamily, five units and up is commercial. And then commercial, we kind of break up into three segments, small to medium, which is sort of that five, you know, five to 75. Basically, once you get to where you have a dedicated office and full-time staff that works there, then you sort of go into the, the medium size and then that scales up to say 250 and then north of 250 is sort of larger multifamily. And I, that is purely our definition. There are other variable definitions over there, but commercial multifamily strictly is ending five units and up in our space. When we first, my first deal was a $4.3 million, 112 unit asset. Now we don't buy anything under $15 million to, you know, 180 to 200 doors. And we've gone as high as like where we're doing a $34 million deal. We're closing in a couple months. So, so Chad, what would you say, you know, as opposed to single family investing or small multis, what would you say is the benefit of going big? What would you say is the benefit of multifamily, of multifamily real estate, as opposed to, you know, buying a triplex or maybe even just, you know, the single family investors out there who strictly buy three tools, you know, as far as bedrooms, like that's what they buy. That's what they focus on. What would you, what would you say is, is some of the, some of the things as to why you got into the, the, the bigger apartments really, really early? To disclosure, we actually didn't get into them. We actually did both. So I'm going to, the, the preferences I'm going to share are experience-based preferences. Again, not neither right nor wrong. I know plenty of people who make good money with portfolios of cash flow homes, but at one point in time, we had a hundred cash flow homes because, you know, we, there was, a, there was a market back in eight, nine and 10 of being able to do that prior to them getting rid of income-based appraisals. So we would go, you know, we built that up. And the problem is, is if you, on paper, you're thinking, okay, 50, a 50 to hundred unit, you know, residential units should be similar to a 50 to hundred unit apartment building, but they're not, you know, it's, it's 50 roofs, it's 50 plumbing sets. The, the scale and the operational load is harder with the residential space. First and foremost, there's that. And let's say you want to work, you want, you've got four tickets you want somebody to work on. Well, in an apartment complex, they're just doing a ticket. 
cleaning up, closing, going to another ticket, and they're in the same complex. If they're across your portfolio of cash flow homes, you're maybe hitting two of those, or at best, three of those. So you have repairs and maintenance inefficiency, you have uh, operational inefficiencies, you have capex inefficiencies, but that's not the worst part. The worst part for us was the property management is so mom and pop and messy in that space that it makes meaningful, profitable scale impossible unless you're going to build your own management company in that space. And we didn't want to do that at the time. So there are plenty of people that will buy in locations where they're always rented. They don't have these issues and that's fine, but that's a market specific phenomenon. It is not something you see nationally. Nationally is always problematic to scale management in that residential tier. We make, we joke that we make twice as much money with half the time by going to larger apartment complexes. It's absolutely true. And we've done both, but that's, there's other stuff to it. And, And a lot of people get worried about going bigger and, there, I'm not going to lie, there's absolutely a capital constraint. But if you can, there's this myth in real estate, and, and it's absolutely a myth, is that if, uh, if you have a good deal, money will find you. It's just, it's a lot. It's not, because if you take a fantastic deal and your, your brother is bringing that deal and he flunked out of college, can't hold a job, is marginally an alcoholic, are you going to invest with them in that fantastic deal? Or would you rather find someone who's done it, let's say 50 odd times and every one of those has made money? Money flows to people that know what they're doing. So the hard part about scaling up and getting started in multifamily is getting good enough to know what you're doing, to look someone in the eyes and say, I can take care of this for you. And so that's a level of education experience that is just the price of admission. But the thing is, it's, it's readily available if you know what you're doing, if you're willing to do it. But uh, yeah, it's just... Yeah, we, we, we'll, we'll never not do that. I love that. I love that. And, you know, I was, I was going to ask you maybe what bad recommendations do you hear in your profession or your area of expertise? But I think that's, that's a perfect one to kind of harp on. Uh, money doesn't always follow a good deal. And you kind of have to position yourself, you know, in the right light to kind of get that to, to work out in your favor. Is there any other things that you can think of that, that can kind of distinguish between single family investing or small multis as opposed to large multis and, and why you should, you know, start looking at investing in large multis? With the smaller stuff, you, the, the lending environment is a little bit more mixed, meaning that you can start with recourse lending where you will get a certain number of loans on your credit, but then you're going to be credit impaired where you can't buy. Either there's a hard limit or you can't buy more because of the, the, the ratios between you and your assets. And, and so it's harder. And then as you then eventually you can get to sort of bank lending that is either recourse or non-recourse, but the LTVs are low. Like, so you lose leverage. You might go from 75 to 60 or even 50. So you can get the lending, but you're like, at what cost to the profitability and scale? Where in multifamily, commercial multifamily never lost its non-recourse status. It's one of the only product types that, has been non-recourse all the way through the downturn and back through, meaning that they underwrite the deal and you're underwritten just in case, just you have net worth and liquidity, but if something bad goes wrong, as long as you didn't commit fraud or introduce environmental hazard, you can't be held liable for any loss. And that is, that is absolutely an explicit safety stamp on the asset class. It, I'll give you an example. We're, 
we're we're almost preferred with Freddie and and pretty close with Fannie too. We've done two hundred and fifty million dollars of debt with them. Perfect payment history. And they those guys. People don't think about lenders in in commercial. They have no obligation to lend. They only lend out of a profit motive. Fannie Mae and Freddie residential. They have an obligation to get a certain amount of, to help out housing. But the commercial guys, they don't. They're just there to make money. They haven't had a loan loss in three years. In their during the downturn, their largest loan loss, their charge up, distressed debt rate, not even loan loss rate, was like 0.8%. So they're fantastically good debt investors. So and they love commercial multifamily. So the think about who we're we're not we're not saying we're the smartest guys in the room, but ostensibly the smartest guys in the room invest in the assets that we buy. Yeah. I love that. I love that. And, you know, you talk about the downturn, Chad, and, you know, I either want you to, you know, maybe add to this or challenge this because, you know, I often tell my investors and my clients that, you know, they, they ask, well, what happens in a downturn and how, how, how can I best hedge, you know, my investment and, you know, things of that nature. And, you know, I don't know what, what property class you invest in, but, you know, we, we've distinguished between real estate and stocks and bonds. Then we, we took it one step further and we distinguished between commercial real estate and residential real estate. Now, we've also taken it another step further to distinguish between all the other types of commercial real estate and large multifamily properties. Now, even in that subset, you know, there's still another, another distinguishment to be had. And we talk about class A, class B, class C properties, you know, new developments. And when people are talking about a downturn, you know, my outlook on that, and I haven't, you know, I haven't been through a downturn. So I'm only, only able to speak on my experiences and the experiences of, of the guests on the show and my mentors. But my outlook on that is that because we specifically invest in class B properties, when there is a downturn, the first people to take a hit are developments, new developments class A properties. And what happens is lots of, lots of residents that are in those properties, they're, they're, they're starting to downgrade. So what we see in the market, especially in, in the Dallas area, is that when that happens, you're going to have people leaving class A residential properties to, to live in class B properties. And the occupancy rate either stays the same in a correction, or it actually increases, whereas class A, the occupancy may dip a little bit or may maybe dip drastically. And these are some of the trends that we see, you know, in the niche that we're in. So I, I, I was curious as to your thoughts about that and maybe what, what you know, even within multifamily, what, what classes of, of buildings are you looking for and why? The stats absolutely prove out what you just walked through. It's not, it's not just your experience. That's, that's what happened. In the, in the A space, in A, you have to bifurcate A a little bit into two classes, brand new construction and let's call seasoned A product. And that's, that's 10 years or less. So new construction, they literally have to get it occupied in some way, shape or form to take out the construction loan or else it's just going to be a ghost building. So there's all this stress to create concessions and cut prices to, to do that. So do you want to deal with that stress in the middle of a downturn? Mm -hmm. You can, make, you can make more money than God in a, in a, if you're a developer, as long as the economy is in your favor. And when it's not, you give it all back. And I just, I don't, I don't want to play that game. Uh, a lot of people do, and they make a ton of money. I just, not for me. The, the seasoned A, they get beat up by the brand new construction cutting prices. So if you're a resident, think about resident psychology at an A level. They, they're very, there's a lot of elasticity in their rental rate. If someone's making, because most renter profiles is they have to make three times their rent level. Well, if they're making 90000 a year, you know, they could spend a lot of money 
on rent on a monthly basis. And so if they can spend 2,500 bucks for the lazy river, the brand new TVs, massage service, or, you know, whatever, some lower number for some amenity they don't care about, they might take the higher place when everything's going well. But when it's not, you either get a discount. And if you have some place with the better amenities, but at a lower price, then you get beat up as a seasoned day. And, and all, that, all that happened in the downturn, you can see it in every single metro. The B stuff, the resident profile is different. That group rents out of economic preference and economic need. Amenitization is important, but not as important. So typically the workforce housing rent resident is going to find the location they want to live in, in the market that has some proximity to jobs and schools and school grades matter. And even if they don't have kids, it matters because it creates gravity for the, the market, the submarket. And putting all that together, okay, great. What's, what, what can I afford that works well in that location? So different math. And they tend to move down at a much slower pace than A's move down. And then C's, you know, you're going to have, some will have subsidized, some don't. Some might be LIHTC, tax credit, some might not. But they're going to be under-meditized, under-loved, going to look rougher. And it's just, it, it, it's just a tough space. Collections are harder. Skips are harder. You, your, your cash on cash returns might look sexy on paper, but you're going to have to work three times as hard to get it. And your exit's going to suck. You know, so that's, you know, so everything you mentioned, we, I could not agree more. Lifestyle Design Acceleration Hacks. What is your favorite Before the Millions book? You know, I mentioned the goal, which I highly recommend, but also the the one thing, only because I'm not a very I'm not a very regimented guy, and so, to me, I'm more of a sprinter, and so that there's a certain focus of start it, get it done, move on, start it, get it done, move on, and I think the that book is a really good piece of just whether it's creating an environment to do something, doing it yourself, farming it off. It's fantastic. And both, both books will fantastically, if I had to pick one, the goal is first. But of the two, I'd add the, add the one thing as well. Love it, love it. And the one thing is by Gary Keller. Uh, yes. So definitely check that book out. Question number two, what is your favorite lifestyle design app? This can be a business app or tool. Ooh, honestly, I'm, I'm old school. I'm 46. Uh, you give me a pen and a legal pad, and let me architect changes in the business or a vacation or a lifestyle shift. Give me something I can write on and draw on. And that does more for me than any little fidget tool, button, whatever. And look, I'm a computer science major. I love technology, but it actually slows me down for big picture stuff. I love that. I love that new new perspective. And that, that's amazing. Yeah, I'm very visceral as well. If I write something down, it means a whole lot more than typing it. So I totally agree. What do you enjoy most about the way your lifestyle is currently designed? I'm a control freak, so but I don't need to do it all. And being able to have a company that people want to be a part of, whether as an investor, training students, staff member, having that creates scale to attract fantastic people. And then being able to do, having 15 people all aligned doing the same thing, it's, it's a drug, it's fantastic. And, and being able to do that then lets us do some amazing things as a company. But then, you know, if I want to take 60 days off in the year, I can't. I, I don't because I love what I do, but I still, I probably get vacation time once a month in some way, shape, or form. 
What were the sacrifices that you knew you had to make before the millions to get to where you are today? I took a pay cut. I went from I went from making 25 to 30 grand a month as a consultant to living off savings for six months and then only living off nine grand a month for three years to build the business. Who was essential to your growth before the millions and why? Oh man, there's no one who, there's several. It's the whole jobs quote, you know, life only, you only connect the dots looking backwards. I had a couple bosses that were absolute tyrants that I hated working for, but I learned so much, both good and bad, about how to work with people who will not, who will not be named. <laughs> but, you know, I absolutely believe there's a positive lesson in every single relationship that you have. Whether or not you enjoy that positive lesson is entirely up to you. I don't know that I had one mentor. I'm a, I went and grabbed whatever expertise that I wanted and learned from it. There have been some fantastic people, but I don't know that there's just one. Love it. Well, I mean, that those bad influences or maybe good influences have made you who you are today. So I love it. Last but not least, why do you think so many of us are stuck before the millions, even though we have every intention on getting to the millions? Intentions don't matter. It's commitment. So I got to give you two examples. Do you have kids? I do not. Okay. So I've got one child. Every single parent I've talked to gets this. So if you have a dog you learn unconditional love because that dog gives it to you, right? You just, they, they will, a dog will give you unconditional love as long as you're a reasonably decent owner. It just, they get, that's the way they're wired. That's the way they're bred to be. So you get to see it, but you don't experience it. When you have a kid prior to them being born, you know in your bones, and whether it's genetic or not, it's still real that you would take a bullet for that child the moment they're around, right? It's just this unconditional commitment to taking care of them. And if you had that level of commitment, to a business goal, you would be unstoppable. But without that commitment, it's nice, just loose. Excuses come up, other things come up. Everyone's got the same amount of time. It's just what your commitment drives. And, and it can't be 100% commitment's easier than 99% commitment. Because 100% committed means you're just gonna do what you decided to do and do it without questions asked. 99% means there's a chance for you to waffle, think, rationalize, do something different, make excuses and fail. It's commitment. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Chad Doty himself. And this has been an amazing interview, Chad. If the listeners kind of want to get a hold of you, learn a little bit more about you and what you do, where can they find some of this information? So our website is 37parallel. That's 37P-A-R-A-L-L-E-L.com. It comes out of the fact that the Southern Smile is basically DC to San Francisco. It's, it's right at the 37 parallel, two thirds of net domestic migrations below that line. But the, they're there, and then if you go 37parallel.com slash book, you wrote something called Evidence-Based Investing. It's basically a collection of the third-party information of why we believe multifamily. It's not our data. It's just consolidation of a bunch of research in terms of why commercial multifamily. So it's just, it's a resource for folks. So it's out there. Well, there you have it again, Chad. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We've learned so much about your upbringing, so much about your failures turned successes. We've learned about single family investing. We've learned about multifamily investing and investing at a commercial higher level and what type of investments to start looking at. And, you know, it's been a, simply a pleasure to kind of walk through this journey with you again, Chad. Thank you so much for all that you do in the community, the, the give back that you've done here on the show. And we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much. It's been fantastic. Thanks for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in seeing if you're a good fit to work with the Before the Millions team, here's what I want you to do next. 
head over to beforethemillions.com forward slash call. That's beforethemillions.com slash call and book an appointment to speak with our team. We'll get on the phone with you for about 45 minutes and we'll get you crystal clear on three things. Number one, what is your cash flow goal? How much are you looking to make every month? Number two, your personalized investing strategy. And number three, the best way to get started using cash flowing rental real estate. Remember, starting and scaling your real estate investments and business doesn't happen by itself. You need expert guidance to make it happen. We've helped clients all over the world start and scale their investing efforts to six figures and beyond while enjoying life and making the world a better place. To find out if we can help you do the same, head over to beforethemillions.com forward slash call. I'm Dorel Lallier, and let's talk soon.